Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your hot takes, your questions, your observations, and ultimately your comments about tennis or anything else. Over 24 hours ago, I posted in the YouTube community tab over 100 comments. Again, wow, uh, incredible. Thank you, everybody. Uh, making my making my job hard when it comes to actually narrowing this down. Uh, but as always. Comments that got a lot of likes, got priority, as well as, and I didn't do a very good job of this last time, so I kind of course corrected. Uh, if you are a member, that also helps you get in the mailbag. But ultimately, if you're not a member and your comment gets a lot of likes, it doesn't matter. Uh, you will still get selected. Um, hit the join button, $2 a month. Support the channel. That's how to become a member. All right, let's start with Medezio. We got some hypotheticals. Who would win in the following matchups if the two players were at their best? Medvedev versus Murray, Alcaraz versus Delpo, and Ferrer versus Rude. All right, Medvedev, Murray. Yeah, that's easy. I mean, Murray. There's Other than first serve, I can't really think of anything that Medvedev does particularly better than Murray. And uh, I assume that Andy tactically would do do quite a bit to draw Medvedev into some uncomfortable positions. Um, yeah, I mean, Murray Murray was uh, is a better player. Uh, Alcaraz, Delpo, you know, it's funny. You say at their best. I don't know if we know what Alcaraz at his best even is yet. I'm quite certain we don't know. But even from what we've seen from Alcaraz, I'll go Alcaraz, much more complete player. Uh, moves way, way better. Uh, I don't think that Delpo would be able to just blast him off the court. Although, you know, the the weapon and the sheer pace that Delpo uh, would bring, you know, it could make Carlitos uncomfortable, but that's another pretty easy one for me. I'll go Alcaraz. I like the last one the best, Ferrer versus Rude. That's a, that's a fun one. That's interesting. I tend to think that Man, I, I, the, so Rude's got, you're going to get a lot of baseline rallies. Rude's got the bigger forehand. It's kind of a question of Ferrer would probably do a pretty good job of keeping it on the Rude backhand and just kind of extending, extending, extending. And how would Casper handle that? Like, does he have the toughness and the rally tolerance to, kind of stay patient on the backhand. So I think that would pretty much be be what Ferrer would try to do is just, you know, I'll keep you in backhand jail. If you drop one short, I'll go big inside in uh, and I'll try to finish with the forehand. But really, it would be about how tough could Casper be. Look, I, I just think Ferrer in a big match has shown a little bit more match toughness. But look, Rude, if he fully develops... He's got more capabilities than than Ferrer. So I'd, I'll say right now, from what we've seen, Ferrer, but it, it should be Rude. Rude's got a much bigger first serve and a much bigger forehand. And, you know, he's got speed just like Ferrer does. Uh, I just think Casper needs to become a better m match player. And then I think I would give him the edge. But right now, still Ferrer. Next one is from Philip. One got 28 likes. Gil, in today's game, would you rather be better at generating pace 
like Rafa, Alcaraz, Sinner, Team, Vavrinka, Tsitsipas, or absorbing and redirecting pace. Djokovic, Murray, Medvedev, Zverev, Hercoc, PCB, RBA. I know both are very important. It depends a lot on the surface, but you have to pick one. Thank you for the best content on the internet. Thank you. We try. We try. Uh, okay. This is a tough question, obviously. I think my answer, though, if if you don't include the serve in pace generation, which I don't think you are. I think the serve is a separate category. I feel like the skills that come with absorbing and redirecting pace and how much they play a role in your ability to return serve effectively is ultimately what, what makes me answer in favor of the pace absorption. I just think, you know, your return of serve is such a big part of your success, uh, especially if you just look at men's tennis and the big four era and uh, particularly with Nadal, Djokovic, and Murray, how much better they were at handling big serves. Uh, obviously, Federer being a little bit more towards the serve-centric side of the coin. Uh, but I think we saw with with Djokovic and, and Murray in particular, uh, how the pace-absorbing skill set can really translate into elite returning and what a big difference maker that can be. I mean, if you are if you are a good baseliner um, and a good athlete, and you're able to neutralize the big serves, that that's a that's a really good start. And that's why, if I had to choose, I would go with absorbing and and redirecting, uh, which comes down to technique and racket technology and all that. Uh, the last thing I'll say about this young, you know, the young players more and more are playing with lighter rackets and they are pace generators. Like that's the kind of the direction that I've seen where the older school guys, they hug the baseline a little bit more and you know, those are the, the pace absorbers. So just kind of an interesting trend there from Niklas, in 2022, you gave the Player of the Year award to Nadal almost solely on the merit that he won more Grand Slam titles, too, than anybody else. Assuming nobody equals Djokovic's tally this year, is the 2023 Player of the Year already a foregone conclusion? I mean, okay, here's what I said. I said unless they're back, back in 2022, last year, here's what I said. Unless there are some overwhelming factors that would cancel this out, it's it's always going to go to the player who who won the most majors. Now you are saying that assuming Djokovic continues that that basically that nobody wins the next two and matches Novak. So assuming that it's not two two at the end of the year, uh, I still think that given the fact that. Uh, I still see a scenario where there could be a debate at the end of the year. Uh, now, look, this is unlikely to happen, but if Novak were to not win another, if you win three, you're player of the year. It's 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 a wrap, all right? But if Novak were to not win another and uh, Alcaraz were to win one and at the end of the year there was a large disparity in the success outside the majors, which there currently is. So if that continues, right, like... Novak doesn't have the Masters, uh, Alcaraz and you know Medvedev are the leader in titles. So if it's 2-1 in majors and Alcaraz has a massive lead in success outside of the slams, there still could be a debate. Uh, the way the because the way the first half of the season has gone is is Novak uh, has been quiet outside the majors. So I don't think it's a foregone conclusion yet that if Novak uh, stays on two and that if uh, Alcaraz wins one. Uh, that would be the only scenario um, where where we could have a debate at the end of the year. But we're doing mental gymnastics here, right? Obviously, Novak is in the driver's seat for player of the year. One more major wraps it up, and probably he's already done enough. Next one is from Yebi. What is your take on Saudi Arabia's involvement in tennis? Would you go there if there was a media pass, all expenses paid? Great question. 
relevant question. Um, let me let me answer them separately. It's a different thing, right? Um, my take on Saudi Arabia's involvement in tennis. First of all, as I as I said on Twitter, I would be very surprised if the ATP were to turn down a PIF investment based on you know moral factors. I'd be I'd be shocked. The fact is the cat is out of the bag. Organizations have already accepted PIF money uh, like the PGA. Uh, big time individuals in sports have already accepted uh, PIF money. Cristiano Ronaldo, Karim Benzema, uh, to name a few. And, you know, there's a saying that everything has a price. And I do believe that's true. You know, I, I do believe... I mean, with look, there are some exceptions, but most things have a price. And when you are are you know wiggling two billion dollars in front of a, an organization, and you're Andrea Gaudenzi, and you know that that you know your job is to oversee a financially healthy ATP tour, and that's your livelihood, and that's your purpose in life, and and in your career, and you basically have this golden ticket being dangled in front of you and you've seen other people accept the golden ticket. I'm not going to sugarcoat it as much as we would like to say, no, it's all about doing what's right all the time. And it's not, it's not about money. You know, that's obviously not really reality. Uh, the reality is it's hard. It's a hard thing to turn down life-changing, game-changing, career-changing money. It's not easy. Um, so ultimately, I think that that if there is an offer on the table, I believe it will be accepted. That is my assumption, especially because I haven't seen, like, the ATP has not had a history of, of being uh, particularly staunch when it comes to, I don't know, uh, taking moral stands, I'll say. It hasn't been particularly forthcoming in, in that area. So it's just not something I anticipate. Now, if I if I could kind of rule the world, uh, this would get into my question, would I go there if there was a media pass? Um, I, I would not. I, I would not. I could not in good conscience. Personally, like I would just feel too queasy. Uh, there are people very close to me, uh, dear, dear to me, people who I love that uh, do not have the right to live in Saudi Arabia. And for me to waltz into that country and cover and promote in a way their event, uh, I couldn't do it with a clear conscience. That's me. All right. Next one is from Michael. Hi, Gil. Uh, keep up the good work. Thank you. My wife and I are big fans of yours. I love to hear that. I noticed while Alcaraz, Runa, and Sinner all slide a lot on hard courts, Alcaraz has chosen not to slide at all on grass, while Runa and Sinner still do. Sinner even got injured at Hala because of sliding. What are your thoughts on sliding on grass? Does it provide any advantages, and do you think it will become more common over time? Huh. You know, at the end of the day, it could be as simple as this. It's either... You look at what Novak Djokovic is doing. He moves better, defends better than anybody else on grass, and it's not even close. And you try to copy it. Like, this This exists. This is, you know, a, a reality of all sports. You look to someone who's doing something better than everybody else, and you try to replicate that. You try to emulate that. So the fact that, you know, young players like... Sinner and Runa are coming on and, you know, looking at Novak Djokovic and saying, yeah, let's try to do that, comes as no surprise at all. And, you know, I did notice that Alcaraz was kind of taking the, you know, smaller, lighter steps approach. Uh, but I do think in emergency situations, Alcaraz will be, will be and has been willing to slide on grass as well. Uh, but the question is, you know, t only time will tell. Is Djokovic just some kind of anomaly here and no one is actually going to have the ankle mobility and the balance capabilities to slide on grass like Novak, uh, that is a possibility. 
ultimately, I think it's more likely that Novak will will ultimately go down as kind of a trailblazer in this effect. And just as we've seen, uh, just looking at the trend, just as we've seen sliding on hard courts become more common and now sliding on grass become more common, uh, I probably think we will uh, continue to watch that trend move in that direction. Next one is from Rico. Do you think Berrettini could return in top 10? He is the first person born in the 90s to make the quarterfinals in all slams. Do you think it was luck or is he a top 10 level player? Interesting stat. I didn't know that. It's tough because at face value, I think, sure. I mean, Berrettini was, I mean, what's his career tie, a career high. I, I think he was pretty comfortably inside the top 10. If I remember correctly, Berrettini, career high number six in the world in January of 2022. And, you know, age-wise, what is he? Age-wise, 27. All right. Should be in his prime. And, you know, he's had some injuries recently, but all of that logic would suggest that, yeah, he'll be back. Unfortunately for for Mateo, or I guess it doesn't matter what I predict, but uh, I don't actually see it that way. I I look at the top 10 itself, and this has been something that I've noticed as I've done my, my, you know, top 10 predictions before the year. It's so young. You know, the top 10 is so young, and you just don't find a lot of room for people to be exiting the top 10 as much as you find room for people to just be staying there. And that's why I just think this is such a uh, a difficult top 10 to crack. Uh, you have nobody over the age of 27 other than Djokovic in the top 10. And Berrettini being the flawed player that he is. I... I just, I could see him, you know, if I look at a player like Taylor Fritz or or Francis Tiafo, you know, both of them occupying the top 10, like, uh, do I think the cards could, you know, if Berrettini is healthy for a year, could he outperform one of those guys? Sure. Uh, but then again, you have guys uh, between 10 and 20, uh, such as Felix Ojealiasim and Lorenzo Musetti. I mean, it's just very crowded. And I see Berrettini in the same light as I see Hercotch, as I see Chorich, as I see Nori, as I see, uh, I don't know, a Demonor and a Serendolo, like all of these guys who are outside the top 10 right now. It's not that I look at them as players and I think, uh, you can throw Hatchinov in there as well, who's at 11. It's not that I look at them as players and think, oh, I don't think they're good enough to get into the top 10. The reality is, though, I look at all of them and I say, man, over the next three, four years, there might be, I don't know, two or three spots that that open up because Rude isn't going anywhere, Medvedev's not going anywhere, Alcaraz, Tsitsipas, Runa... Uh, Rublev, Sinner, uh, the top eight right now is just, it's a fountain of youth and Djokovic. And that is why when you ask me, is Berrettini going to enter return to the top 10? That's why I lean no, uh, because I just think there's so much competition for those few, those few spots that might be on offer to enter the top 10 outside of these young guys who just aren't going anywhere, who are going to be clogging up those, those top 10 spots. And Mateo's got to get healthy. From Emily. It occurred to me while I was listening to you discuss Kasparud's decision to basically ignore grass that maybe something has to be done to de-incentivize that choice. What do you think of the idea that since grass court season is so short and there doesn't seem to be any way to lengthen it, that maybe the points should have more weight percentage-wise? 
it does seem rather imbalanced that people who are good on either clay or hard court have so many opportunities to earn points, whereas people who excel on grass have so few. Thoughts? Yeah, you know, look, it is unfortunate that your Jordan Thompson, Adrian Manorino, Dennis Kudla, I'll throw Francis Tiafo, uh, you know, the, these guys are Berrettini, Kyrgios, right? Some of these guys who... FAA even, FAA deserves to be in, in that group of players. These guys are best on grass. Like it's their best surface and I don't have to hesitate in order to name drop those guys. Um, and, and that's just, just men, you know, I could go to, go to women as well. And there are plenty. Yeah. It, it's unfortunate for them as well. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Um, but I don't know. This seems like a pretty radical solution to say, like, we're going to make I mean, look, you can't reinvent the rules uh, to try to make up for uh, a problem that is actually rooted in some fairly, uh, I don't know, grounded reality, which is that it's hard to maintain grass courts. It's, you know, there are less of them. And ultimately, the solution here is going to be to develop a grass court master's. And then to try to work with Roland Garros and Wimbledon to just create maybe, you know, just a little more space in the calendar where you can have a grass court masters in between those two. Um, and that's ultimately how this problem gets solved. And if that happens, it's doing what you are asking, it, you know, it's accomplishing what, Emily, you want to happen and what I think most people would be happy to, ha to happen, which is just just a little bit more balance. Like, let's just reward these players who are maybe flatter hitters, who have better serves, who come forward really well, who, you know, just uh, have really great slice, keep the ball low. Like, let's just reward that play style a little bit more than we currently do. And I think that would be great. That would be a positive. Um, you know, I'm not preferential to any surface, but I, I sure am preferential to diversity and watching tennis in different conditions. And uh, honestly, some of my favorite, you know, one of my favorite parts of the year is after Roland Garros, when you just, you, you start to watch grass court tennis and it's like, wow, um, you know, this really does feel fresh. It really does. Even though I've been watching an unbelievable amount of tennis in the last two months, like this feels like a completely new start. It almost feels like January when the Australian Open is starting. You know, it, it's kind of like that. Anyway, I like that. Ultimately, do you, you know, just create, make Halle and Stuttgart and stuff like in Queens? Like, do you weight them more heavily? Do you give them more points inorganically? I don't think you can do that. I think you just need to ultimately figure out how to make a Grass Masters 1000. All right, a couple from Jason. Uh, his two comments were back-to-back, -back, so I just decided to grab both of them. Uh, can you briefly map out how Djokovic gets to most titles? Does he start playing 250s? When will he go for this? When he's done winning majors? All right, so first of all, I don't think it's important enough for him to actually alter anything he's doing right now, at least. You know, Pete Sampras did do this uh, when he wanted to get his sixth year-end number one. Um, I, I don't know what year it was exactly, but I know that he was having trouble uh, the sixth year actually kind of maintaining that number one ranking. And he ended up playing a lot of indoor tennis at the end of the year just to make sure that he finished number one. Uh, so yeah, like if you really want something that badly, you can adjust and you can do it. I don't think that would kick in for Novak unless he got to like, Connors is at 109. So if if Novak was at like, you know, 107 or something, and, you know, it got to that point, then, then yeah, maybe he would start to push for it more, but I don't think he would do it until it got to that point. Uh, then the second one, uh, Gil, I've been following a lot of other sports and the transition of their women's leagues accepting trans athletes. Can you give me some info on the WTA policies and which trans players are climbing the rankings. I'm not aware of any. I'm not aware of any trans players in the WTA Tour. Um, and in terms of policy, I also don't know. But I would touch up on 
your history uh, of just the the Renee Richards story because uh, I think tennis tennis contended with uh, with trans with with trans participation in professional sports. I'm pretty sure before anyone else did any other sport. And what ended up happening with Renee Richards is she was banned from the U.S. Open, took it to court, like sued the USTA, and actually won the lawsuit and then got to play in the U.S. Open because of the lawsuit. She was pretty old. Uh, she got to a career high ranking number 20. So she wasn't a dominant player. Um, again, I, I think she was she was very old, so that could not have helped her cause uh, but she she played professionally for a couple of years, so that is the only history I'm aware of. But but I I, I don't know what the policy is. Uh, I don't think it's been easy for for any any league to uh, basically figure out what to do here. Uh, it's not it's not easy. I don't know what the policy is. Okay, uh, from David Corda at Queens caught my eye. He had a great tournament and plays beautifully. He is my favorite young American within the top 50. How would you rank them by talent and future? The other thing that stood out was Alcaraz's progress playing on grass. On his debut, he looked clueless and was close to losing. But by the end of the tournament, he was incredible. Gra oh, he was playing incredible grass court tennis. He has great tools to be great uh, and winning many Wimbledon. He just needs more experience. Thoughts? Yeah, Corda. Corda is unbelievable. I mean, his effortless power, the way he can threaten off of his two-handed backhand is is pretty much second to none. I mean, I think Zverev at times can be just as scary off of his two-hander, but Korda, Korda probably is number one on my list. Uh, in terms of who are you most scared of when you go to their double-handed backhands, yeah, it would be Korda. Uh, I don't I don't know that it's quite as scary as Vavrinka or uh maybe team is a little bit more scary maybe Gaz K at times especially like on grass uh but as far as two-handers go offensive offensively I think Korda is as pure as it gets um and he's got the height to really develop a big serve which can really help him uh get that complete offensive package he's got that really kind of Calm, cool, collected mindset to him as well, uh, which which is nice. Sometimes can be erratic on the forehand, but the main thing that's held back his career is the durability. So it's all about staying healthy. And it, it was very easy to pinpoint that very early in Corda's career as, you know, when he first came up on tour, I was just like, all right, like, you're, you were kind of injured in that final, and then two months later, you were kind of injured there, and then you retired there, and then you you missed two months there, and it was like, it, clearly, his body just wasn't able to hold up, very clearly. And, you know, the hope, here's the hope right now, is he had the wrist injury, that that was a freak thing. And really, you know, he's gained a lot of weight. He's built a lot of muscle. His legs are much stronger. Hopefully the wrist was just a freak thing. And ultimately he's actually built up his durability uh, to a point where, where he's ready to play 11 month seasons on the tour healthy. He's able to endure long matches, best of five, two weeks. That's kind of the question. But yeah, he's got tons of game and um, I'm, I'm very high on him. And the grass court results early on, super positive. Really positive. Yeah, Alcaraz on grass. I don't know that I have that much to add. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to love about Carlos Alcaraz's prospects on grass. Uh, I was on Gruskin's podcast. You guys probably know Gruskin. I don't know if I need to explain who he is. I was on his podcast in 2021 where um, I was just trying to like make the point that Alcaraz is not like this Spanish clay court guy because before... Before people really knew who he was in 2021, and it was just like, whoa, there's this Alcaraz guy, and uh, he played this really sick match in Rio against Ramos Vinolas. So, like, we're talking early days of Alcaraz. Um, I told Gruskin, I'm like, look, he might win more Wimbledons than Roland Garros is in his career. 
Like that is a legit possibility because these guys want to compare him to Nadal and I'm sorry, but he's more like Federer. He is, his uh, brain is wired to finish points on his own terms. And that's how he tries to play. And you can, you know, tell me about how he jumps up and down before points or how he hits open stance backhands and he's a righty with a two-hander and he looks like Djokovic. You can tell me all of these things, but when it boils down to when it boils down to what are you trying to do on the court? Like how are you trying to play winning tennis? The actual objectives for Alcaraz uh are it's very clear that he is taken after Roger Federer. And it's no coincidence that all his life when he has been asked, hey, like, who's your guy in the big three? Like, who do you, who do you think you're like? Or who do you uh, model your game around? He's always said Federer. He's always said Roger. All right, I kind of got off of uh, on a tangent there. But um, um, I, I don't know. Hey, uh, Federer was pretty good at Wimbledon, huh? Yeah? So that's how we're going to connect it. Next one is from Zach. Hey, Gil, what are your thoughts on Berrettini and Kyrgios' chances for Wimbledon, considering their losses at 250s as well as both of them pulling out of the 500s that they were supposed to play? Look, always a terrible sign when you come back from an injury and it's a false start. Like, you think you're ready, you realize you're not, you have to go back to the sidelines. That's always a very bad sign. Um, look, Kyrgios, he hasn't won a match in 2023. And I'll leave it at this. The idea that Nick doesn't have to put in the work, doesn't have to practice, be in the gym, build up his fitness, get match tough in order to be a successful pro tennis player. That's just BS. I'm sorry. Uh, we've seen the version of Nick that doesn't put in the work. We saw it for years. That's a guy who struggles to maintain a spot in the top 50. We've also seen a Kyrgios who's committed, who is putting in the hard yards in the gym, playing a lot of matches, and that's a guy who can be top 10. That's a guy who brings a top 10 level. So get out of here with the Kyrgios can just show up at Wimbledon, you know, barely healthy and just do well. I don't believe that. Like maybe he'll prove me wrong, but I just don't believe that. And Berrettini, I mean, it was so ugly. Like, he, he came back at Stuttgart. I mean, I don't know if he felt extra pressure to come back in Stuttgart because the title sponsor of that event is Hugo Boss, which also happens to be his clothing spark partner. And, you know, uh, he's a, a huge part of their brand, honestly, internationally. It's crazy. You go everywhere and you see Matteo Berrettini on Hugo Boss uh, posters and billboards. So I don't know if that played into it, but God, he, he wasn't anywhere near ready. And look, there's been a crisis of confidence, it seems, for Berrettini for, for quite a long time, even dating back to before the ab injury became a thing. So I have very low expectations for both of them, quite frankly. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. All right, this one is from One Tote Bag. What are your feelings on piracy slash illegal streaming of sports, but particularly tennis? How much harm do you think it really does to the industry or athletes? It seems like the main victim here is the advertisers who are hard to be sympathetic towards, but I'm sure there is some impact on broadcasters and players themselves. I don't think it's the advertisers, actually. Um, it would be the the TV stations, actually. It would be the the rights holders because, you know, advertisers, they are pretty much paying for what they are expecting to get from a rating standpoint. So 
Like, let's say, I don't know, I'm just going to make up a network like that doesn't have tennis. Uh, let's say WNQR uh, should have 2 million viewers, but only gets 1.5 million every year for airing Wimbledon. Ultimately, the advertisers are going to be paying for their 1.5 million viewers. Uh, it's actually WQRV who is losing out on saying, hey, we get 2 million viewers here, so pay us more for advertising. Does that make sense? Look, you know, it's a big problem in the pay-per-view model, you know, where, where, you know, a lot of people illegally stream boxing and MMA and I think that's a, a major chunk out of out of the, the the revenue streams of a UFC, for example. In tennis, it's hard to know how significant the population of illegal streamers really is. Um, and you know, it's a very interesting question here, but I don't know how much light or, or interest I can uh, insight I should say I can shed on it on this um you know it, at the end of the day it's uh the the best way to counter it is to make tennis accessible and sometimes that's that's been a challenge I I, I know it's different country by country uh the United States is not is not perfect uh by any means but you know, you do know if you're an American, you do know how to get the tennis at all times. Uh, luckily, because of Tennis Channel, uh, obviously uh, corporate shilling here, but like it's always there. You know the destination for tennis. Uh, is it is it expensive? Yeah, uh, it, it can be expensive, um, but at least you know how to get it. I feel like in the UK and in some other places, it can be it can be very very confusing, and what you don't want is for that confusion on where do I watch the tennis to lead to oh I'm gonna just watch it on the betting websites or illegally stream it. Um, I think that everybody could benefit from from clarity in distribution of tennis. Everybody. Next one's from uh, Don Don Gallagher. Or Dan Dan, Don Don or Dan Dan, I don't know. Uh, Gil, one of the things I'd absolutely love you to do one day, could be during the offseason, is to watch and do your Monday match analysis of old classic matches like Querton uh, against Sampras at the ATP Masters Cup 2000 or Sampras versus Agassi, US Open 2002, uh, and other blockbusters from the 90s and early 2000s with the likes of Safin, Hewitt, uh, the crazy Gaudio, Correa, uh, 2004, RG final. I mean, it'd be fantastic to see your analysis of these matches. Is that a possibility? Yeah, there are some some ideas like this that I've been excited about, like to do in the off season. It's so hard in the off season to like grind on something that, frankly, is just not going to get that much viewership. And again, like so I I make plenty of videos that I know aren't going to get great viewership because I you know, just want my subscribers and my audience to enjoy something. Uh, but in like the one month of the year that I don't have that kind of constant kind of content pressure machine rolling, it, I'll be honest, it's it's somewhat hard for me to motivate myself to like, you know, just grind out like Monday match analysis for these old matches. Um, although like I wouldn't, I wouldn't put, I wouldn't say that, there's no chance of, of me doing this kind of thing. I did do it uh, during the pandemic, and I will say, I believe I did cover the Sampras versus Agassi US Open 2002 match uh, during the 2020 pandemic. So go back, try to find that. I, I'm, pre I'm pretty sure I did that one. I think I did it with a guest. Maybe it was Steve Flink. I think it might have been Steve Flink. Uh, yeah, look for that. That was a great match. Unbelievable. Next one is from Harry. Hey, Gil, love the content. Thanks for everything you do. Appreciate that. I'll keep it short. Is it time to start considering Runa's forehand a weakness relative to his other assets? Yes, such a good question. I'm wondering the same thing. I am. That is the side that can be erratic. I think the footwork can be sloppy at, at times. 
Uh, but more, more than anything, it's just, man, sometimes you don't know what to expect because there have been time, there were times on the clay where it's like, he wasn't doing enough. He wasn't really generating any penetration through the court. It was just kind of a slow loopy forehand and it, it just came across as very passive at times. And it was like, wait, what happened to what happened? And I think I said this, I don't know what video it was like, what happened to your Instagram forehands? Your Instagram forehands are huge. When you watch Runa on, you know, practice, oftentimes he's, he's doing these dead ball drills where he's just absolutely smoking the ball. And in matches, sometimes he doesn't do that. And then there are times where he is flattening it out and it doesn't feel like it's high margin. It feels like it's very, it's very almost like hope and pray kind of forehands happen at times. So I'm trying to figure this out. I really am. I, I don't know what to make of Runa's forehand at the moment. So great question. Let's continue to track it. All right, only a couple more here from, I don't know how to say this username, but what are your thoughts on Sinner and his ongoing injuries? Is it a fitness issue or is he just injury prone? I mean, look, it's getting better. This has been the first the first real issue in 2023, right? Uh, this leg injury in Hala. I don't believe that Sinner has had any issues and that's a massive improvement from what we've seen in years past. Uh, last year, we saw him break down a ton in the first half of the year. Uh, we saw him get worse and worse as tournaments progressed. He had a really uh, bad record in quarterfinals last year. And this year, he's held up much better. Uh, the only kind of, uh, I would say, counter to that is you could say, well, Gil, isn't he wearing down from all the tennis that he played in February and March and April? And all that success, and now he's just coming crashing down, and he's played way worse recently. Maybe. Maybe. But overall, I would say in general, yeah, Sinner has been injury-prone. Luckily, they haven't actually been bad injuries. They've been small stuff. But, you know, that matters too. So, I mean, I would say note the improvement in Sinner's durability. Note it. Uh but also know that it, it has been one of the challenges for him consistently throughout his career. From Hank, has the big three influenced the way we view players' ability on surfaces? With Alcaraz, I think that people were quick to slot him into the clay court player role, even though he's had more success at this point on hard courts and he hasn't even really played on grass. Coming from an era where the for the most part, the big three each had a surface that was theirs. I feel like the tennis world is looking to find that sort of dynamic again. Yes, although do keep in mind, the big three were unprecedented in their ability to have success across all surfaces. Novak Djokovic is the most surface versatile player of all time. And I mean... Nadal had, you know, got the grand slam and Nadal got the grand slam. So like, let's, let's career, you know, career grand slam. So let's also have that context in here. Um, but yeah, I, you're right. There, there has been some, some efforts to figure out like, all right, like what's Alcaraz's best surface where the answer is, you know, potentially like, no, he's kind of like Djokovic. There's not really a best surface. And if there is, it's like, only a slight, a slight difference, a slight variation. Uh, and I just think that's, that's how it's going to be more and more. It's modern tennis. You know, you, you hear me talk about this a lot. Look, I, I try, it's tough because there needs to be some nuance here. And let me be clear. Uh, when I say like, Hey, like Rude should be able to do well at Wimbledon. I don't mean that he should be able to win Wimbledon. I mean that as the number four best player in the world, under no circumstances, if he actually puts effort into playing well on grass, under no circumstances should he be the 50 player in the world on grass. It just shouldn't happen. So, look, tennis is about small margins. Surfaces can affect those small margins. But no longer do I see the surfaces as 
something that affects the game on on big margins like it used to. Um, and that's, look, to be continued. We'll talk more about this. Um, all right. Let's go two more. All right. Here's one that got 11 likes from your friendly general assignment pilot. Hi, Gil. I've always wondered why nobody does a jump serve like in volleyball. Is there any rule that forbids it? Is there? Um, I don't think there is. I think if you want to try to do that, you can go ahead and do that. Obviously, you need to jump from behind the baseline. And yeah, I... I I mean, then again, there there might be a rule that forbids it. This is such a wild suggestion that that I I don't know, but I feel like you can do it. It seems very unstable. Like the the serve in tennis, you gotta have some level of like precision there, and it feels like a lot of moving parts if you're gonna do a jump serve uh, like volleyball style. Um, and then um, the, the next question is, if Alcaraz doesn't win a slam defeating Nole, do you think that will be a mark that will stay with him? Uh, I know that's unlikely given his age and Nole's longevity, but just wondering. I don't think people's memories are actually that great. So, no. Um, it also depends on what ends up happening with the head-to-head, -head, right? If they were to play... You know, three more times in majors and Djokovic sweeps it and wins all three. Then, yes, I think that regardless of what Alcaraz would, you know, be doing for the next, you know, the remainder of his career, there would always be that, like, it really couldn't beat Djokovic as a youngster. Remember that? Uh, but then ultimately, I, I do think you can't discount the fact that, um, if you're able to dominate your era and years and years and years go by, stuff like that is forgotten uh, eventually. I'm trying to think of an example, and it's hard for me to do so, but just never underestimate people's ability to have a really bad memory when it comes to historical context. Never underestimate that. At the end of the day, you know, people look at raw numbers, and that's what kind of ultimately... I would say permeates, you know, breaks through and 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 leaves its mark in the mainstream discourse. Last one here. Uh from Mr. Black Global. Global. Hello Gil, what is your take on the Sabalenka press drama during the French Open? The insistence of some in the press to junk it? Oh, some of the press junk it. I've never actually never heard that press junk it. To mix sports and politics was heavy-handed, and French Open officials, I believe, did well to shield Savalenka. However, I doubt she will get such treatment at Wimbledon, and the British press may see her as fair game. Do you think the issue will boil over during Wimbledon? First of all, I agree with you. I mean, there's no, there's no tougher, uh, what did you say, press junket than the British press junket. They can be brutal. Uh, but... Look, here's what I'll say about the Sabalenka thing. I believe the press have, you know, every right in the world to ask Arena Sabalenka questions about uh, her, you know, stance on the war. However, I think at this point, fine, and, you know, it took a little while there where, where she actually hadn't really given answers. I think at this point, she has given answers. So... That in in that respect, I don't know unless something new comes up, um, unless something new comes up that creates more unanswered questions, then then yeah, maybe those questions will reappear. But right now, I, I actually think at this point, Sabalenka has made her stance very clear that she doesn't support the war. Uh, she's now said that. Um, I, I also think while I while I do feel that the press has the right to ask Arena about these topics, uh, just taking a look at the specifics of how these questions were asked, 
in the you know the manner in which they were asked, uh, a lot of it was very poor. And those two separate things, those those things can be separate. It's like, is it okay to ask her about it? And are you actually asking the question as a journalist and not as an advocate? And are you accepting her answer for what it is? And those two things are very separate. Um, I, I in in one of the cases though, you know, the journalist was from Ukraine, and I understand why impartiality might be difficult for a member of the media who happens to be from Ukraine when, look, I, I know that journalists are supposed to be like inhuman in a way, but uh, yeah, like they're brothers and sisters and uh, homes uh, may have, may well be either destroyed or under threat. And in such a dire situation, you could understand why you know, a member of the media might have trouble asking the question in a more neutral and appropriate way. So that's my thought on all that. All right, we've gone 50 minutes. This was a good one. Uh, remember, if your question wasn't answered, we're going to do another mailbag at the start of Wimbledon on that Monday, as always. So uh, plenty more to discuss then. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.